evening. Let me depart from my normal pattern and begin with a question. Look around the room, look at this structure, and answer this simple question. What is the most important part of this building? On a day like today, you probably are inclined to say the roof. Others of you, the beautiful windows, the pulpit, the baptistry, the steeple. Well, in a very real sense, a strong case could be made that the most important part of this building is the one that nobody ever sees. And that's the foundation. That's because without a solid foundation, no structure, no matter how beautiful, how architecturally pleasing, no building with a faulty foundation will ever last. It will never work. It will crumble. And the same is true of the church. And I'm not merely talking about this building that we often refer to as the church. I'm talking about the institution, the organism of the church, the people of God, the bride of Christ. She must have a solid foundation if she is ever to be kept from crumbling. And so with that principle in mind, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2. And tonight we are concluding our four-part series on the doctrine of the church. We've been using the Nicene Creed, that ancient summary of the teaching of the Christian faith, specifically using the creed's four marks of the church to frame our study of the doctrine of the church. We saw in the first sermon that the church is one or united. The second sermon looked at the church's holiness. The third we looked at last week talking about the church's Catholicity or it being universal. And tonight we'll complete our quartet by looking at what it means when the creed says that the church is apostolic. So let's start by reading from Ephesians chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 17, but we'll spend our time tonight on verse 20. Hear the word of our Lord. And he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, our Father, maker of heaven and earth, ruler, sustainer, provider, Father, we ask that you would rule in our hearts, that you would be first, that we would build upon nothing else other than Christ and him crucified as the cornerstone of a foundation that's built upon the apostles and prophets, Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So the church is apostolic. What does that mean? Well, first things first. Before we answer that, we ought to answer another question of what is an apostle. One pastor uh, described the office of, pa of apostle in this way. That is, he, he is an, an ambassador. In the New Testament, this term apostle refers primarily to those who were commissioned by Christ to represent him to the world, to be his spokesman. Thus, close proximity to Jesus in his earthly ministry and being an eyewitness of his resurrection were the requirement for the office. 
And so we see that in Acts chapter 1, for example. It makes clear that to be an apostle is someone who must have been an eyewitness of the resurrection. So the, the 12 chosen by Jesus, minus the traitor Judas, were apostles in Acts chapter 1. And then the remaining apostles were thinking through, how do we replace Judas? They suggested a man named Joseph and a man named Matthias. And these two men had been with Jesus from early on in his ministry. And they were present at one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Thus, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Further, Paul was called and appointed an apostle of Christ by Christ himself. Acts 9 and Acts 26 detail Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to Paul. And we see other marks confirming this calling in his life, like his miraculous abilities and his reception of divine revelation and the writing of Scripture. We should also note that the term apostle, apostolos, is used in the New Testament in other less technical ways as well. It can refer to a messenger in the most general sense and not someone strictly called to the office. So, for example, Paul uses the word to describe Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. He says that he sent him as a messenger and a minister to the church. We could even say in a very general sense that we're all apostles in the fact that we're all called to be messengers and ambassadors in various places in the New Testament. However, such language is imprecise and can be confusing in these categories because we're, not, we're certainly not saying that we're all eyewitnesses of the resurrection and recipients of infallible divine revelation. We're not in the office of apostle. And so that leads us to a crucial distinction that must be made when we're talking about the office of an apostle. This office was not meant to be a repeating office. By the very nature of the requirement that you must be an eyewitness to the resurrection in order to be even qualified to be an apostle, that necessarily means that no, there are no apostles today. Apostles were for the first generation of the church. They were foundational, to go back to Ephesians 2. And when you're building a building, you don't lay a good foundation and then continue laying more and more foundation. You lay a foundation that's good, that's solid, and then you stop laying foundation in order to start building the structure. And that's what our master builder has done in the church. Jesus affirms the foundational role of the apostles in passages like Matthew 16, where he says to Peter, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Christ is the builder of the church, and he builds it upon the foundation of the apostles. And he clarifies the nature of this foundational role in John 13 through 17, when he says that these men would be designated to be spokesmen. They would be led by the Holy Spirit to give the word of Christ to the world. They were speaking, as it were, for Christ. And they were entrusted or deposited with Christ's words of revelation to give to the church once and for all, Jude, verse 3. This informs our understanding of their foundational role. So that means when the church down the street says that their pastor or their preacher is an apostle, apostle so-and-so, that means that that man or woman is either totally self-deceived to think that they are on par with Paul and the other apostles, in which case you run, or that person is mistaken about the nature of apostleship. They are not an apostle in the sense of the biblical office that's filled with eyewitnesses of the resurrection, fulfilled by those possessing miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Same way you don't see modern apostles walking around the cancer center healing people. 
You don't see modern apostles miraculously revealing God's power in extraordinary ways. And so to sum up, what is an apostle? An apostle is a spirit-anointed, Christ-called witness to the resurrection of Jesus, who served a foundational role in the establishment of the New Testament church. And now given that definition, what does it then mean when the creed says that the church is apostolic? What does it mean for a church to be apostolic, to possess an apostolic faith? I want to answer that question with six points. Six points about the nature of an apostolic church and the faith of an apostolic church. Number one, an apostolic church has a faith that is fixed. An apostolic church has a faith that is fixed. It is not fluid. It's a faith that's not evolving. It's a faith that's not enlarging or drifting. That's part of what Jude is talking about in his letter when he speaks about the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's been delivered, and it only has to be delivered one time. It's not the job of the church to reinvent the gospel message for each succeeding generation. It's our job to receive and to embrace that which has been delivered by Christ through his apostles. That certainly doesn't mean that the church or that we as individuals don't grow in our depth of knowledge and our understanding. It doesn't mean that our faith cannot be further explored and better understood by the church. Indeed, of the writing of books there is no end, and that's because God and his works in history reveal a divine person of such depth and enormity and love that we could never fully plumb the depths of knowledge in him. But growing in our knowledge and grasp of that faith that has once and all been, for all been delivered is totally different than untethering ourselves from the apostolic foundation and exploring what else the world might have to offer us. And that's the perennial temptation, to not be content with what God has delivered to us in the apostolic foundation of the church which is simply salvation by grace in Jesus alone. And we instead seek to found the church and build our lives upon a salvation of another means, namely our works, our own righteousness. Churches build their foundation upon the shifting sands of man's opinion instead of God's fixed word. Or they build their foundation upon their good deeds rather than heart-level devotion to Christ alone. Or they turn the Bible and the faith revealed therein into a self-help regimen. As if you pick out a few Bible verses that are relevant to the situation, you think really hard about them, you try harder in those areas, and God will let you into heaven because you tried really hard to be a good guy. That's not the fixed faith of Scripture. That's not the apostolic faith that has been delivered to the saints once and for all. The apostolic foundation is clear. You can read about it in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. We are all born dead in our sin. We are following after Satan in the course of this world. We're selfish. We're hateful. We're demanding our own way. We're coveting the things we see around us. We're hating God and hating what he's given to us. That's what the apostolic faith says about us, how we're born naturally. But praise be to God, it doesn't stop there. It also says that the Son of God has been sent as the perfect sacrifice of atonement, the perfect substitute that we need to grant us righteousness and to take away our unrighteousness. And that Christ, that Jesus, he came and he died in the place of his people and has been raised on the third day that we might be made right with God. That is the heart of the apostolic method, 
and the foundation of the apostolic church. Without that heart of the gospel, of Jesus' substitutionary death in our place, no church can be apostolic. No church can be Catholic, rightly understood. No church can be holy, and no church can be one. Salvation in Christ alone is the foundation of the church, and it's that that has been given to us through the ministry of the apostles. If you trust in that message, specifically the Savior proclaimed in that message, then be encouraged. You are at one with Christ. You are brothers and sisters with the apostles. You're in the household of God. But if you don't embrace that message, then you have no hope. You are outside of the apostolic faith. You have confused your own good deeds, your own works of righteousness, as a possible way for you to be made right with God. And that is at contrary. That is at odds with the apostolic message. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 1 that if you believe that message of you making yourself acceptable before God, you are to be accursed, cast out condemned. You're not only self-deceived, you are undermining the foundation of the church. So come, come to Christ and believe in this apostolic message, and you too can be made part of the household of God. You can get out of the hamster wheel of trying to be righteous enough to earn your own salvation and your own entrance into heaven. You can't do it. But you can be granted such gifts if you confess your inability And trust in the Savior who is the cornerstone of the Christian church. The cornerstone of the foundation. The apostolic faith is fixed. And it's fixed because our cornerstone is immovable. His salvation is accomplished and his work is done as demonstrated by his resurrection and ascension. Second, not only is the faith, the apostolic faith, fixed, the apostolic faith must be guarded. The New Testament teaches that the apostolic faith must be guarded. This is related to the previous point, but it needs to be made explicit. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in fact, if you want to go over there, we'll spend the rest of our time in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 6 6, verse 20, Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what some falsely call knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Timothy would be tempted, just like men and women in every generation of the church, to swerve away from the apostolic faith, to go after the things of this world, the things the world calls knowledge, to go after the wisdom of men, to join in the irreverent babble. Because of sin, every generation of the church must battle for the supremacy of God's truth. No church is immune from the slide toward losing the deposit of faith. That's because we're all battling remaining sin. And because no church will naturally drift towards greater faithfulness. No church, no Christian, no family, no marriage will naturally drift towards greater holiness and faithfulness. We have to guard the faith, guard the deposit. That takes intentionality. It takes effort. It takes study and reflection. It takes doctrinal clarity and learning. It takes humble, prayerful determination. It takes faith. The church must be vigilant to battle, to do guarding effort of the faith. 
And that's one reason why the church must only ordain men who are competent to guard the truth. The men of God called to lead his church must be like Apollos, mighty in the scriptures. They must understand with godly wisdom what God's truth is and how that truth relates to different areas of life and practice and how to apply that truth to individuals in all sorts of situations. Further, those men must not merely possess the needed biblical and doctrinal wisdom. They must also possess the character to guard the truth in a Christ-like way. These men are called to be shepherds of the flock, and to be a shepherd means not only guarding the deposit of faith, but also means using God's truth to fend off the wolves. Jesus and Paul both make clear that wolves will come, and they won't look like wolves. They'll look like sheep. They'll smell like sheep. They'll act like sheep. They will be convincing in their appearance, and they will be crafty in their words. Only a church full of godly men and women and led by humble godly men will be able to stand firm against the attacks of Satan. We have to be on guard. We have to carefully choose our leaders and we have to carefully pray that we can all guard the deposit of faith. Have you ever considered your role in that duty? You may not be a pastor. You may not teach in any capacity in the church. But what role do you have in guarding the deposit of faith? When you teach in Sunday school or you're instructing children at G321 or when you're talking to your children or your grandchildren, are you helping to ensure sound doctrine is being passed on to them? Are you helping to guard the faith? Do you pray regularly for the teaching and preaching of God's word? That it might be rightly divided that the pastors and deacons of this church would have great discernment when handling God's word. Do you pray for your own grasp of biblical truth? That the Spirit of God will illumine the pages of Scripture and give you an ever-increasing knowledge and wisdom from His Word. The apostolic faith must be guarded, and that means we need churches full of Spirit-filled, faith-fueled guardians of the deposit of faith. Third, not only must the apostolic faith be fixed and guarded, but the apostolic faith is bounded. The apostolic faith is bounded. I mentioned this last week in passing, but the gospel message, the truth of Scripture, is not infinitely elastic. You can't just take the faith of the Bible and stretch it over whatever you want. You can't make the faith to be anything you want it to be. There are limits to the apostolic faith. We can, with God's help, examine different areas, different ideas, different claims in this world and make clear decisions about what is true and what is false. And sometimes those things can be very complex and require a lot of careful consideration. But generally speaking, the apostolic faith has clearly discernible boundaries. The Bible makes them clear. For example, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, that Timothy was to stay in Macedonia and to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. You see, in Paul's mind, there was a right doctrine and a wrong doctrine. There was a line in the sand, which is offensive to our modern, postmodern sensibilities today. We, like Timothy, are not free to be the arbiters of what is acceptable and what is not. We don't have the authority to adapt, to amend the faith. 
And yet we see churches all the time drifting into this temptation. It's usually slowly, but churches and individuals drift from the apostolic faith with heartbreaking regularity. Sometimes the drift is done in crafty, subtle, perhaps even intellectually sounding ways. Like when seminary professors and authors of Christian books argue for new ways of interpreting the Bible that haven't been found in 2,000 years of church history. They alone have found the key that unlocks everything. And it sounds theologically astute. They might even use big words. But the end result might be a subtle undermining of God's word. I've got books on my shelves that were written by men who started out as faithful theologians but have now gone off the rails to teach doctrine that's different from the apostles. For example, they start out with philosophical arguments about the historical setting in Corinth and Paul's context and the Greco-Roman social patterns of the day, and it all sounds great, but they end up at some conclusion about how Paul's words in the letter of 1 Corinthians were just for the church of Corinth at the time, and we're not under them today. They're not binding on us. These arguments are fashionable. They sound initially intellectually plausible. But the church must be on guard against these crafty, subtle schemes that slowly undermine the faith. But it's not always subtlety that the enemy uses. You can even find books on the shelves today that come right out and they just say, well, Paul was wrong. We don't have to hermeneutically get around this. He was just wrong. Paul was wrong about homosexuality, so we can be proudly gay today and still be Christians Jesus never spoke about homosexuality, they'll claim. Peter was wrong to speak about wives submitting to their husbands. That's patriarchal garbage of back in the day. We're, we're uh, enlightened. We're sophisticated and liberal. We don't have to think about those kinds of things. And so the bounds of what is Christian, what is the truth of God, are slowly erased and redrawn in ways that we like. It happens today. It's happened throughout church history, just like it happened in the garden. When the serpent asked, did God really say? And what the church is called to do, what we are called to do, is stand on the word of God as it has been delivered to us, not how we would like it to be. No matter how hard or how unpleasant it might be in the moment, we are to make clear what scripture makes clear. No matter how much the world may hate it, no matter how strange we might appear, Jesus told us that persecution would happen to us. And if they persecuted him, will they not also do the same to us? We must be vigilant not to fall for the temptation to get kind of fuzzy on truth or to redraw the lines of doctrine and thus put ourselves outside of the Christian faith. Then we'd be like Esau. We'd be selling our doctrinal birthright for a worthless bowl of the world's approval. The faith is bounded, and we are to be bound by it. Fourth. The apostolic faith is fixed, it must be guarded, it is bounded, and fourthly, it accords with godliness. The apostolic faith accords with godliness. Paul says to the church in 1 Timothy 6, verse 2, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness then he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And the key phrase for us for there is the teaching that accords with godliness. The apostolic faith conforms 
to godliness. It tends towards godliness. It agrees with godly living. And that very phrase assumes that there is a category of teaching that disagrees with Jesus' words and disagrees with godliness. Indeed, the very next verse Paul uses to describe a person who teaches and believes these words that don't accord with godliness. He says, quote, this person has an unhealthy craving for controversy. He quarrels about words, words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And so an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarreling, friction. One of the ways that you can test the legitimacy of some truth claim, of some doctrine, is by the ethical fruit that it produces. Wisdom is known by her children. And so if you have a doctrine that produces genuine godly peace and unity among the body, then that helps confirm the truthfulness of that doctrine in our minds. But if some teaching produces division, envy, slander, dissension, suspicion, then that teaching is likely outside of the apostolic faith and it's being used by Satan to destroy the church's unity. You see this kind of division in throughout church history and especially today. Disunity in the early church about the Donatist controversy, which argued that clergy must be sinless in order for their sacraments to be valid. Caused all sorts of schisms. You see fights around the time of the Reformation, perhaps about the depictions of Christ in artwork and in stained glass. Some wanted to smash all the pictures of Christ. Others didn't. And so they clashed even in violent ways. Over the last few years, the church has ruptured over the church's response to racism or to abuse. Today, the church is being torn apart by dissension, slander, rivalry based upon opinions about vaccines and masks. We have to be aware against such temptations. If you have the apostolic faith, if you love truth and you love doctrine and you know God's word, then you ought to be increasingly godly. If your growth in knowledge and doctrine doesn't make you more holy, doesn't conform you more to God, then something's wrong. You're either learning doctrine that is contrary to the apostolic faith, or the doctrine you're learning is merely head knowledge that is puffing you up, rather than letting the truth of God land in your heart and grow you in maturity. The apostolic faith ought to produce in us greater love towards God and love towards our neighbor, and thus confirm the veracity of the doctrine that we so love, rather than producing within us a craving for controversy and dissension. The apostolic faith conforms us to godliness. Next, and I'll move a little more quickly through these last two points, we've seen that the apostolic faith is fixed, that it needs guarding, that it is bounded, that it accords with godliness. Fifth, the apostolic faith is found in the word. The apostolic faith is found in the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 makes this clear for us. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says that Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make him wise for salvation. This isn't a sermon about the inspiration of Scripture, so I won't seek to prove that now, but the apostolic faith is clear 
about the word of God being our only source of absolute truth when it comes to matters of faith and practice. And thus for a church to be apostolic, the church must affirm the inspiration and authority of scripture. And to actively teach otherwise is to erode the apostolic foundation of their faith. And that makes sense. If the apostles are the foundation, how do we know what their message was? How do we know what they were teaching? Well, we know their message because they wrote it down. Scripture makes very clear that these faithful men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down everything that God intended for them to write. And so to be apostolic, we must be devoted to the writing of the apostles and the prophets of God. But churches don't always do this. And they don't always explicitly deny the authority of Scripture and thereby erode or undermine the apostolic foundation. Sadly, there are many today who neglect the apostolic faith by neglecting the Word of God or selectively using Scripture in a way that obscures or even undermines the gospel. If someone selectively uses the words of the Bible to justify unrighteous actions, for example, they're undercutting the apostolic faith. Or if they claim to teach God's word, but they turn sermons into self-help messages about how to make your marriage great and how to get out of debt and solve your financial problems or how to make your kids behave, as if any of those things are man's biggest need, then they are undermining the apostolic faith. As we saw earlier, the foundation of the church is the apostolic message of salvation of sinners through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to neglect to leave that out, to neglect the heart of the gospel message, is to so distort the apostolic truth that it is to practically lose it entirely. To possess an apostolic faith is to affirm all scripture as God breathed. As Paul says in the next verse. All scripture is God-breathed and therefore profitable. The apostolic faith is found in God's word. Lastly, number six. We've seen that the apostolic faith is fixed. It needs guarding. It's bounded. It accords with godliness. It's found in God's word. Now I hope to leave you with some encouragement. The apostolic faith is clear. The apostolic faith is clear. Again, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.14 tells to Timothy, Continue in what you've learned, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Paul exhorts Timothy to remain in the faith that he's known since he was a child. The faith that Paul makes clear in chapter 1 of that letter, the faith that was passed on to him through his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. That's not insignificant for us. First, the clarity of the apostolic message encourages us that nobody is beyond grasping the truth. The simple, the most uneducated, even young children can, by God's grace, grasp the truth of saving faith in Jesus Christ. But also, we as individuals and as a church need to remember the clarity of the apostolic faith. Sometimes our zeal for knowledge and for truth can tempt us to raise the intellectual bar for salvation so high that Timothy's childhood faith would not have made it. Yes, we should pursue doctrinal knowledge and precision, but never at the expense of the clarity of the gospel message. Also, we need not forget that God used the faithfulness of a mother and a grandmother to raise up a Timothy. 
We can see the high calling of motherhood and how God often uses it to produce spiritual fruit and be encouraged that while faith is not necessarily passed through the family tree, God often uses families to pass the faith to the next generation. The gospel is sufficiently clear so that we can begin sharing God's truth with our young ones from the earliest ages. That's part of the great value and the privilege of teaching our young ones in the nursery and in children's Sunday school and in G321. The gospel is simple enough that children can come to faith and know it. And what is it that is clear about the apostolic message? I'll close us with this. The message that is so clear is not that we are loved by God because we ourselves are so wonderful and lovely. We're not accepted by God because we have tried really hard and we have parented so well and we have read enough and we have prayed enough and we have given enough. We're accepted by God only and always because of the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of his people. That is the apostolic message. And it is clear. And it's for each of us. Trust in that Christ. The Christ proclaimed clearly in the message of the apostles. And you too can be saved. Even this night. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of the apostles. The message of Jesus Christ. That you are a merciful and kind God who delights in saving sinners. Father, we pray that we would remember that. That we would not seek to stand in our own righteousness, to stand in our own intelligence and wisdom, but that we would humbly submit to the faith given by Christ, written down by the apostles, that's once and for all, for all the saints. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to finish tonight by standing and singing the doxology. Please stand.